Welcome everyone to our BJJ podcast for the month of May. I'm Andrew Duckworth and a warm welcome from your team here at the Bone & Joint Journal. As always, we'd like to start by thanking all of you for your continued comments and support, as well as a big thanks to our many authors and colleagues who have taken part. We hope that you're continuing to enjoy our podcast and all the knowledge translation work we're delivering from your team here at the Journal. Our podcast continues to focus on papers published each month here at the BJJ, as well as our special edition podcast series. That includes our insights from the US series, along with our specialty editor series with our invaluable specialty editors here at the Journal, both of which we are continuing this year. So today for our monthly podcast, I have the pleasure of being joined by three authors from a paper published in this month's edition of the BJJ entitled Robotic Arm Assisted versus Manual Unicompartmental Neoarthroplasty, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of the Mako Robotic System. So firstly, I'm very pleased to be joined by Mr. Nick Clement, who is a fellow editorial board member here at the BJJ and one of my great colleagues and friends here in Edinburgh. Thanks for joining us, Nick. It's great to have you with us. Brilliant. Thanks for inviting me back, Andrew. I didn't think you'd invite me back after last time. (laughs) Secondly, we have me and Nick have the pleasure of being joined by one of our great colleagues from the West, Mr. Mark Blythe from Glasgow. Mark, great to have you with us today. Yeah, delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. And rounding off our lineup, lastly, but certainly not least, we are delighted to welcome back our great editor-in-chief here at the BJJ, Professor Faris Adab. Prof, it's great to have you back. Andrew, thank you for having me and thank you for, for doing this. So uh, I thought we'd kick off, guys, with actually with yourself, Prof, if that's all right. I, I thought you maybe could give us a brief overview of your experience so far with robotic knee replacement and how you feel the literature has sort of evolved and developed over the past few years. Yeah, thanks. It's been a, it's really been a fascinating area which has grown exponentially and looks like it really is here to stay. So certainly from a London and England setting, my experience of the the current systems, if you like, of Mako dates back to 2016 when we got the first clinical system in the UK, and uh, which after Mark's um, research system that which he's had in in Glasgow and done some very nice research with. So we've got now five and a half years of experience with it, starting with the uni and then adopting the total knee and increasingly using the total hip with the modern software. It's It's been a fascinating learning curve in terms of understanding the power of this technology and quite what it can deliver in terms of the three-dimensional planning, in terms of understanding individualized targets and instead in, in terms of being able to execute them. And I think the literature is basically paralleled. It, 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 my, my experience, it's been initially started with studies focused on accuracy and precision and the ability to hit it. Then there were sort of short-term clinical studies looking at the perioperative pathway, early patient outcomes, patient recoveries, and the pain response, the need for fewer opiates than standard procedures. So documenting some signals. And as we've gone along, the studies have increased in number and become more sophisticated. So now we're seeing more granular patient-based outcomes. We're seeing longer-term outcomes, both clinically and radiographically. We are, I can tell you in the background, starting to see five-year PROMs. We're starting to see some registry data, and we're starting to see the randomized studies beyond the the excellent Mark Blythe studies starting to report, including one of our own pilot studies that we published in the journal last year, Mm -hmm. but the others now closing to recruitment. And we've also seen some bigger studies start to recruit, like the RACER study. So I think the literature here is becoming richer for this one device. And I think it's important to stress that the robotic explosion goes beyond this one device. It's really the whole enhanced technology field is growing, but each device needs its own data, its own evidence, and its own literature. And certainly for this one particular device, the Mako, we've seen an explosion of interest and a great deal of data now. 
Yeah, absolutely, Prof. And like you say, it's it's very important to say that this is very much on the maker robotic system we're going to be talking about for this paper. But it, like you say, it's so important that each of the systems have their own evidence and, and have their own buildup of literature. But I agree with you, it, it, like a lot of maybe you know, maybe potentially false dawns that we see in our in our field where you, something exciting comes along, but actually it doesn't stay or the evidence doesn't support it. This really has just kicked on, hasn't it, really? I mean, it's been incredibly impressive I mean, I think it's it's interesting because we saw navigation come and to a certain extent go. And I think there is a difference in parallel here in that we're looking more three-dimensionally and we're starting to understand the target. Yeah. And uh, particularly in the knee, that may be the big change that's happening and that we're recognizing the target that we're chasing may not be the target we chased before. Yeah, absolutely. And Mark, if I could come to you next, you know, we all know you've, as Prof has alluded to, a huge amount of literature in this area with some excellent RCTs. You've done many which are published in the journal. Can you give us your take on a, a similar question to Prof on the current evidence in robotic knee replacement and how that's mirrored your own experience as well? So, Andrew, I think, look, I think the evidence base uh, is growing, although, you know, if we're being really critical, robotic systems have been around in orthopedics for the last 30 years, and it's been a pretty slow burn. And it's, it is actually said that uh, there are more review articles uh, written about robotic systems uh, than actual articles on original research, which is, which is a bit damning, uh, really. Yeah. A lot of the original studies... Um, were done, of course, on the original uh, fully autonomous systems, showed relatively high complication rates, particularly with, with the soft tissues. And I think the experience more recently uh, with these semi-active uh, systems, which we really focused on in this paper, are probably much more uh, relevant to, to, to modern practice. Uh, the, the data that we've got on unicompartmental knees, I think, is much more mature. The system, MAKO system, uh, was developed and became uh, available for clinical use in 2008. But it wasn't really uh, until it was acquired by Stryker that it became uh, widely available for use with total knee replacement. So that total knee replacement data is definitely not nearly uh, as uh, uh, mature. So I think it is developing. It's really been very interesting to see uh, the results of all the different studies uh, that have been coming through. I think the only thing I'd say about the evidence set from the, the, the literature, and as we look at it, is we always have to be mindful with these uh, new technologies about the risk uh, of bias. We're all invested in this uh, as surgeons, as the nurses and physios, the porters, the managers, industry, but especially the patients are all, we all want this to work. Uh, and that might affect the way that we uh, report uh, how our knee uh, feels or how we interpret uh, the results uh, of um, the studies and the data that we are uh, presented with. So I think we always need to be careful that we look and we search out for bias uh, in case we uh, feel that there are perhaps uh, undeserved benefits uh, from this technology, but very exciting to see the data uh, that's coming through now. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a really interesting point, Mark, like you say about bias and even like you say, from the patient point of view, in that certainly if you say, say to a patient, you're going to get a robotic knee, there's probably already a bias there that they're going to get something a bit shinier and a bit better. And, and that's a really interesting point, isn't it, about how they interpret it afterwards? Yeah, and I think it's it's, it's interesting because that, that bias, I think, has evolved. So so we've, we embarked on our first unicompartmental knee study probably back in 2010 was our first recruited uh, patient. And actually, there was quite a lot of suspicion around at that time. And you fast forward uh, five years uh, uh, or, or plus to the more recent studies, uh, and patients are definitely would look to, at that technology as providing them uh, benefits. So patients are certainly not in equipoise, and we need to be really careful, even in our randomised control 
trial type studies uh, that we try and uh, maintain that blinding uh, where possible and really look uh, for, for, for protecting uh, the studies from bias. Absolutely. And Mark, just before I move, I move on to the paper, just, just for those who are not familiar with it, you mentioned the type of system. So the MAKO is a, in contrast to some other systems, is a semi-active system. So that allows the surgeon to sort of interact with the robot during the bone preparation, alignment and e-balancing. Is that correct? Yeah, so it's under it's under surgeon control uh, throughout the whole process, and what the robot does is 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 create this haptic, this boundary based on your on the preoperative plan, beyond which uh, it's impossible uh, for you to cut. It provides a physical uh, resistance uh, and also gives you some audible uh, uh, clues as well when you're at the edge of the boundary and will eventually shut down if you if you push it beyond those boundaries. So very much under surgeon uh, control, whereas these fully autonomous systems originally. Um, you could take your hands off uh, and the, the, the robot would do all of the milling uh, yeah. for you and much more difficult, therefore, to control uh, from a safety perspective. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, Nick, if I, if I come to you, uh, can you sort of give us a brief introduction, introduction, Nick, to the paper itself and, and maybe some background on the current systematic reviews that are out there and what, what made you look at this? Yes, uh, um, um, I'd just like to try and defend the review after Mark's comments there that there's more reviews than papers. This is obviously the the best review, of course, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sets the mark for others. So this review really came on the back of a paper that we all 2019-ish, when I, I was just learning about robotic surgery. I hadn't, I've, haven't done any on a patient just yet. I've done a few on a cadavers, but I'm still just looking at the evidence rather than doing the surgery myself. And and we amalgamated all different types of robots, um, semi-automated, and and put all the results together. But Prof mentioned at that time when we did that review is that there's obviously different robots out there, and obviously the more reading that we've done, we then looked at the recent systematic reviews that are out there, and everybody's done the same sort of thing: just put put them all together, mm. see what comes out the other end. So we first did this for total knees looking at the, the robotic arm-assisted, i.e. the MAGO image-based system compared with gold standard being manual. And then we looked at the total HIP that was published last year in the journal. And then we moved on to looking at the unicompartmental knee. Mm. Um, that was the only paper, actually, I didn't actually show a functional difference. So that was the aim, really, just to just to have a like-for-like like comparison rather than a homogeneous robotic. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. And, and, and would you, in terms of the quality of the elixir, when you look at sort of total knee, uni-knee, and hip, is, is which one would you say has the best quality of evidence currently? Well, Mark Blythe has obviously published his randomised trial for 10, and that's a high-quality study. But there's lots, as Prof said at the very beginning, there's lots coming through now. The RACER mm. study, which is total knees, um, and RACER 2, total hips. Mm. So there's a lot more data coming out now, and Prof's own studies, are, I'm sure, will be coming out shortly. Yeah, absolutely. So, Nick, if we just move on to the the, the methods of the paper, just I thought we talked about this just very briefly. I don't want to take us away from time for discussion, but uh, can you just maybe give us a, a quick overview of, of how the paper was set up, the review was set up, and what studies you included. There wasn't enough randomised controlled trials, sadly, because it was only marks four times. So, so we included level two and level three st- studies, only robotic arm assisted, and any study that was reporting learning curve, implant alignment functional outcome, complications, and, and cost. Because mm-hmm. uh, we thought those were kind of the main five outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they were collected by two fellows that were with us at the time. Uh, and we did all the work. Jun Ren Zhang, who's the uh, uh, main author, and Nathan 
long. So got to thank them for all their work. Absolutely. And just before we move on to the results, Nick, in terms of the outcome measures, the problems particularly, that, that varied in what was reported and it wasn't reported at all, was it? Is that correct? Well, that wasn't reported in, in the mall. Those those that obviously followed proms up reported different proms. So like some had the Oxford scoring, some had the Nice Society scoring, some had the Walmart in, yeah. all the different time points. Sometimes there weren't, there was different variations on that score reported. So it was very difficult to, to 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 put them together. So we just reported on the Walmart and the Nice Society score. One option would have been to convert all the scores to zero to 100 and then just put them all together. But we thought that was a bit, maybe it's not perfect. Okay. So we reported on the main two outcomes being the Walmart and the Nice Society score. Brilliant. Okay. So if we if we move on to the results, Nick, the, uh, 179 ar- articles were identified from the initial screening, 14 were included eventually. So of the 14, the one reported on learning curve, five on implant positioning, six on outcomes, five on complications, six on survivorship and three on costs. And of the, the type of studies, four were, the, were from the same randomized trial, which you've, which you've mentioned. Two were Markov decision cost economic analyses and three were retrospective and five being retrospective. So in terms of the main findings, could you sort of summarize what you found with regards learning curve and, uh, and implant alignment? I think the learning curve is fascinating because it's the same for the total knee as well. And I can't remember for the hit off the top of my head, sadly, but the, the learning curve for position is zero, which I find is fascinating, right? Like, so even if you're starting to learn, like if I was, I don't do unicompartmental knees, but if I did, I'd have a learning curve of 25, 50. Yeah. And I would pro- probably cause, well, I wouldn't be optimal. Well, with this, your learning curve is zero for implant positioning, obviously I'll take a bit of what I do anyway. And even for operating room staff confidence, yeah. that was around with six cases. And I'm almost sure now that you can apply Mako to total and and unicompartmental. Those six cases are probably going to be spread between the two, I would have thought. So all of a sudden after a week, you're probably going to be flying. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I thought that was a, the start thing, like you say, when you compare it to the manual uni as well, it's it's quite remarkable, isn't it? And and in terms of sort of what about the functional outcomes reported, we, we mentioned them, but what did they show and, and what about complications? Um, there was no difference in functional outcomes and Mark showed no difference in his, and but 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 but, but he did show a ceiling effect. I can't remember the exact number now, Mark, you have to keep me right. I'm sure you presented the Oxford score, was something like, I think it was like 30% had a had a maximum score. No, no, that's right. The score within the MCID of the maximum score, that, that's what it was. So about a third of patients had that. So whether we're using the wrong scoring system and we just don't have something sensitive enough yet, I know some people have used the forgotten Jones score, less of a ceiling effect, but... Anyway, there was no difference in functional outcome, but the main difference that we, you mentioned about the complications there, but within the complications, it was reoperations. Yeah. And there was no difference between deep infection, superficial infection, and reoperation. But when you put them all together, the overall rate of complications, being all those things together, were higher. Yeah. And within that group, we also looked, also, there was one registry study, because obviously you can't include registry, registry data in a systematic review because it ain't on PubMed or. Anyway, you know, but there was an Australian registry study that showed, a, um, I think it was about, a, I think it was 0.7 versus 3% revision rate in around about two years between mm-hmm. robotics and, and manual unis. So that's certainly given the hint that there's an improved accuracy. It might not be shown in, 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 in functional outcomes, yeah. but it might be shown in improved survivorship. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Nick, I think sort of drawing that all together, 
what do you feel are the take-home messages of, of the of the study? But I suppose caveating it with any any limitations you felt that were of there of the data. I think as Mark says, there's a massive bias for anything else than a randomized trial trial, isn't there? When when a patient knows that they're already going to get a makeup. It would be nice to do that study, I suppose. If I don't know whether Mark's got that data to ask what knee you thought you had and whether their outcomes are better, depending on what they thought they might have had. I don't know whether that would be quite nice. To, anyway, but I think that's certainly a big thing. And 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 I think the race are coming from the total knee side of things would be brilliant to let us know whether hopefully it's all blinded uh, um, 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 uh, to see whether there is a real difference with robotic surgery. But when you speak to more surgeons, because as, as I said before, I don't do this, but but when surgeons see these patients post-operatively, they all say it's having fantastic outcomes, mm. good. But again, whether that's bias of their own, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it would be fair to say, Nick, as well, a lot of these studies in the grand scheme of things are still relatively short-term follow-up in, uh, compared to what we need, or is that would that be harsh? And Mark's the longest at FATMA. Was five years. I don't know what you coming up to ten now, Mark. Probably, eh? uh, um, 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 so five. He's probably shown five and probably coming up to ten mm. uh, year follow up. But it would be nice to have um, 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 larger cohorts, I suppose, with with various different proms. But I mean, yeah, absolutely. So, Prof, if I could come back to you, what, what's your take on this? How do you feel this adds to the current data? And what's your sort of what's your experience with particularly that data about the learning curve in the context of your own experiences with robotic surgery? No, thanks. And I think the learning curve is the most interesting thing here in some respects and because we've looked at it within our own unit Mm. for a total hip, for uni and for total knee. And you hit the target from case one, but the learning is all about the team. As Nick said, it's it's all about time. It's, it's, it's really, and it's different for, it'll be different for different people because if you've navigated then your learning curve is going to be a lot shorter in terms of time and putting pins in and so on. So I, I think that's really going to be interesting because we will also get better at teaching this. Yeah. So I think the learning curve it doesn't seem to be harming patients, and that's really reassuring, and that's certainly been our experience. It's been easy to educate people in it. Trainees come in. They love it. They learn a lot from it, and that's something I think the literature hasn't yet possibly articulated is what a phenomenal teaching tool it is to be able to plan something in three dimensions and then execute it and think about it. So that sort of cognitive work that takes place is a critical part of training in knee surgery, which, yeah. which is quite important. Yeah, that's really interesting, Prof, isn't it? The idea that actually that it can actually maybe improve your understanding of what of what you're trying to do. <laughs> so it's uh, that's, really, that's really interesting. And we shouldn't get away from the fact that we probably still don't know exactly what the target is. We still don't yeah. know what the proper balance of the knee is. There's a long journey that we're going on here. Yeah. My, my suspicion is that where this paper sits is it gives us enough of a signal that this is a good journey to be on and that we need to look beyond. You know, it's, it's fascinating for me. Randomized studies are great and we must do them and we are doing them. And Mark's done some great ones. But the problem is Mark's a superb surgeon. So actually Mark's manual unis probably are way better than everybody else's. And hence, for him to detect a signal may be quite hard, whereas, you know, take it out into the masses, bring something that reduces the error, you know, get Clement doing it, for God's sake, <laughs> and then you you may see a fairly dramatic signal. And, and that'd be, on the other hand, you may not, because there's a bit of cognitive work that goes, some decision-making to do. So yeah. there really is an unknown here as to how this is going to translate, but... Yeah. This is a stepping stone looking at 
the data from enthusiasts from big centers that are doing it. And then over the next five to 10 years, we're going to see longer term data, but we're also going to see more pragmatic data yeah. as you know, the registries really start to pick this up. Yeah, no, I think that's the interesting thing is actually when it, when it spreads to the masses, like you say, and you get the, the data from everybody, then that's really the test, isn't it? Mark, if I, if I come to you then, you know, you know, what are your thoughts as well into, you know, similar question to that of Pros, but also, you know, it was interesting reading about, you know, the, you know, the m- m- much redu- big reduction in fewer al- alignment outliers with, with the robotic surgery and the complications. Is that your experience with it as well? And do you think that's where the benefit of this lies in the longer term, do you think? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, that's the one thing we've got a, a real clear signal across all of the studies that have been done, uh, that it's much more accurate at delivering that preoperative surgical plan. And the preoperative surgical plan is probably best worked out for unis because really what are we trying to do? We're trying to, to, to reconstitute that constitutional alignment by retensioning the ligament on the, on the, on the involved side of the, uh, of the joint. And maybe there's a little bit of work to do on what the coronal uh, uh, alignment is of the tibial component, but everything else is really a resurfacing uh, procedure. I think that the, the pre-op surgical plan, as far as is suggested, is really not that well worked out uh, for the total knee replacements. And so we've got this reproducibility and uh, precision that we can perhaps be used to then define uh, what that target is, whether it is mechanical axis uh, restricted or fully kinematic, uh, or this uh, functional alignment that's been done now, which is a kind of hybrid between uh, kinematic uh, and mechanical axis alignment. And so I think so. I think that that's a, that's certainly the, the way ahead. And but that's going to be require uh, a lot of a lot of data and a lot of experience uh, over. But I think the other thing we can do is to use that those that, that safety that we we're demonstrating with it, the, the lower complication rate, and perhaps it really will be of advantage uh, to people who are low air, not low volume surgeons, because we're hopefully sort of gradually eliminating those. But perhaps people in early years of their career uh, to give them a little bit more confidence to do uh, to do the procedure with with a little bit uh, more safety. Yeah, no, absolutely, Mark. I think that's 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 a nice summary of of, of those potential benefits and, and how we can move forward. I thought maybe I'd, I'd finish off asking a question to all of you, which is the same, and sort of maybe being devil's advocate a bit. But given the equivalent findings, you know, with regards to problems and um, reintervention infection, will robotic uni knee replacement ever be cost effective in the NHS setting? Maybe I'll start with with yourself with that question. That's a very good question. Cost effective. It depends on what you mean by cost effective. So, 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 cost effective from a cost utility point of view is difficult. I've ju- you're just working with Mark currently on on his data using the EQ5D. In the recent paper that he published, there was no difference in the EQ5D. So, by definition, from a cost utility point of view, it's difficult. But there is that decreased revision risk potentially in the longer term and the decreased complication risk return to theatre in Mark's paper there was I can't remember off the top of my head it's gone I think there was one arthroscopy maybe two and and one revision in the manual group so all that mounts up because those patients would have had scans CTs whatever else been the clinic a few times seen the GP went to theatre so all that kind of cost mounts up but whether that balances against the cost of Imago procedure to 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 prevent that morbidity um within the nhs i don't know but i think i think certainly if it was a member of my family i'd want a knee replacement that was probably done as accurately as possible mm. so probably 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 going to maybe smart or prof to do them manually but certainly in a normal say i just wonder whether whether accuracy has to be our golden aim or our gold standard so 
yeah. don't know whether it is a cost-effective thing or whether it's just best care. Yeah, that's interesting. And what do you think, Prof? Do you think that's 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 the take it will go down? I, I think you know the studies are being designed, including our studies, including Racer, mm. to to really look at that. In, in in terms of the uni, intuitively, it is so the right thing to do to plan that that way and balance it to the soft tissues. And if you look at the failure mode of unis, you know, we, we've touched the surface with this. We've had, you know, Mark's too good a surgeon, quite frankly, to have done that study. So the problem is the failure mode tend to be things like overcorrection, malposition, et cetera. So I think when we get into the longer term, when we get into wider application, uh, I, I would imagine it'll be the enhanced technology of some form will be the way to do unis because the, the, the error, it's too easy to get it wrong yeah. otherwise. That would would be my view, but you're right. Getting that data, that's going to be a lot of work, and that's that's why these, you know, sometimes we need more research. No, absolutely, probably. That's an interesting take, isn't it? Like when you say, like you said before, if we do spread it, you spread it to the masses, everybody, and actually the the the, the money you will probably save potentially on revisions and other problems, it could all very easily add up in favour, couldn't it? <laughs> Mark, if I come to you last. What do you think? Uh, you've done a lot of the research in this area. Do you think there will be a day when it, it it will just be standard of care on the NHS? Yeah, I think that's it's inevitable. And Faraz has made the point. I've heard him say this many times. You know that robots, once they're in in industry, they, they're once they're there, they're there. They never go. Yeah. Um, and I think that it look the costs will come down. I mean, it's the same with all new technology; they're expensive, and I think that the costs will come down. Uh, over time and particularly if, if you've got you know wider applications of the technology then you can use it in more situations so the cost per case uh, mm. will, will will come uh, down and and it, it, maybe we're asking too much of it to to think that we're going to see the clinical improvements just in the milling or bone cutting and with the marginal gains that you'll get with other new technologies so about you know ligament tension sensors about augmented reality AI and all those sorts of things which incrementally will improve the, the the outcomes, then we'll be able to, to, to justify those additional costs. One of the things that if you look at it, though, you can kind of turn costs in its head a little bit by saying, well, look, you get about six or seven qualies for a unicompartmental uh, knee replacement. The additional cost for us in our study on the basis that we were going to be doing 100 cases a year, which is pretty low volume for, for the use of a robot, was about £1,000 uh, per case, and you kind of do the maths in your head, and that's about 130 pounds uh, per quality. So, yeah. given that you know, nice will fund whatever it is, 30,000 pounds per quality. It's pretty, it's pretty uh, small change, isn't it? So, I think all we need to do is is to demonstrate some 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 benefit, and we we get obsessed with it being a you know a minimally uh, important clinical difference in a prom that we need to demonstrate, but we need to just demonstrate a societal benefit. And I think those costs will actually a, go down and then they will become insignificant in the grand scheme of things. I think that's a very true, Mark. And I think that's a really nice final note, actually, in terms of, like you say, I think it's the cost will come down eventually, like with all with all technology, as you say, and that it will almost, as you say, probably become a fait accompli that that's what we need to do. Well, well, guys, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. But thank you so much for taking time to join us, all of you. And congratulations on a great study and all the work that you've all done in this area. It was great to have you all with us. And I really enjoyed that. And to our listeners, we do hope you've enjoyed joining us. And we encourage you to share your thoughts and comments through social media and like. Feel free to tweet or post about anything we've discussed here today. And thanks again for joining us. Take care, everyone.